0: Chapter 7, where we are this week, uh, we are going to pick up in verse uh, 15. In 15... God's Word's telling us that, that Nehemiah, he's been at this project. He's been rounding up God's people, and they've been at it day and night. And they've had their share of issues and their share of problems. And listen, uh, it's so good because we're getting to the point of a completion. And Vicki read to us today that they got excited about God's Word. And they, they read it day and day, and they held it up in very high esteem. And when God's Word was read, everybody said, Amen. And they put themselves under the authority of God's word. So what a blessing it is. It's never a bad thing to read too much scripture. Amen. Right. So um, really what I want us to see here in in verse uh, seven, starting in 15, it's almost, oh, by the way, uh, we built up to this wall. There's so much done. It's almost, oh, by the way, it's done. Uh, We're actually not going to see the dedication of the wall till chapter 13, but in Nehemiah uh, I Take that back, Nehemiah 6, I should say, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 15 days. And now, this will mean it started around August 1st, uh, 444 B.C. Uh, This means that completion was around September 21st. Amazing. In just 52 days. What an amazing work of God. What a god so project. And in verse 16, and when all of our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us, they were afraid. Remember last year, how uh, uh, last week, how we looked at fear and how the enemies tried to evoke fear in, in God's people. And now we see when, when the world looks at what God does and realizes there is a God who is and he uses broken vessels like us, it's an aw- awesome moment. It'll produce even fear in them. Uh, and they, were, they fell greatly in their own esteem. I mean, God just kind of gave them a reality check. You guys think you're something. Let me show you a ragtag bunch of people that are my people, that are God-soaked, under my word, being empowered by my, my spirit. Let me show you what they can do. So what happened to the world? They, they got afraid. Not only did they get afraid, all of a sudden they had a reality check and there was some uh, adjusting, so to speak, that they fell In their own eyes, they realized we're just not as good as we thought we were. We're not as strong. We couldn't even stop these little people from building... This amazing wall, even in 52 days. Why? Because they uh, had been accomplished with the help of God. They had perceived that this work had been accomplished with the work of God. It goes on to say that Tobiah, one of the enemies of God, was still sending letters around. Uh, He still was involved and, and had a relationship by marriage with some of the people of God's people. And he still was up to mischief. So in the midst of this great finishing of the wall, in the midst of an amazing accomplishment, you know, the enemies of God still were there. And then in chapter 7, 1 through 6, uh, it basically says this, that, that Nehemiah had the smarts to see what God did, and now he supported it, and he guarded it. He said, let's, let's make sure that we support what God has built. So join me in prayer, and now we're ready for the preaching of the Word. Let's, let's pray together. And Father God, we sang this morning that you would be our vision. Oh God, that's my, that's my cry, that's my prayer every Sunday. In this Sunday, that that God, you would be my vision. That you would be pleased to speak through me, a broken vessel. So that together, we all could say that we beheld the glory of God. We were in the presence of Jesus in his spirit. And he is our vision. Lord, let us behold who you are so that we can rejoice in your power the power that's able to save sinners like us and and make us saints, the power of God that's able to take those who are dead in sin and make us fully alive in Christ Jesus. God, come and show us that power today. Fill us with the Spirit of Christ so that truly that every tongue may leave here singing your praises, that every life here could be a God-soaked life and that we could see what a God-soaked life really looks like and the success in your eyes. God, only you could do that. So will you come? Will you come with power and speak through a broken vessel like me? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Our family vacation this year uh, included a trip to Washington, D.C. Uh, how many been to Washington, D.C.? How many been there in the summer? Two words, hot, soaking hot to scorcher. I guess they say Washington was built on a swamp. Do you know that? Uh, we won't go into that. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Uh, but we were there over the 4th of July weekend. Uh, what a what a weekend to be at the nation's capital as a 4th of July. So one of the things we did, we realized that this will probably be our last uh, family vacation together. My kids are getting to that age and things are happening in their life where they probably won't be under our roof for too much longer. And so you're in Washington, D.C. on the 4th of July. What are you going to do? You're going to watch the fireworks, are you not? And so uh, we made our way with uh, just a couple hundred thousand people uh, uh, into the mall area and we went and we found great seats right on the Lincoln Memorial steps and you know I really thought I brought enough padding with me uh, but we sat there for five hours I mean five hours in the heat uh, waiting for uh, an amazing 15-minute fireworks show Now, I don't know if you know this, but that that mirror pool uh, in front of the Lincoln Memorial that separates that and the Washington Monument, they drain that for the fireworks because that's actually where the fireworks takes place. Uh, and it's, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing to sit there and to see that amazing firework display. And, and then to fight like uh, crazy through uh, all of humanity to try to get back to where you're staying. But I don't know about you, but any trip to D.C. would not be complete if we didn't go to the best of all museums. Uh, the most incredible, of course, you know that Smithsonian Museum. What's that best one? What's the best Smithsonian. Air and space, of course. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, maybe for the girls, it's not quite as incredible. I, I think it probably should be, but is Smithsonian—you got to go to the Air and Space. And uh, our youngest, Allie, hadn't been there yet, so she had Dad give her the official tours to go through the door, and and uh, I'm sure she appreciated that greatly. Um, and we went right over the capsules and said, "Now, now, this was the first one. This is the Mercury capsule, and and man was on a on a race to the moon, and we were racing with Russia at the time, and Look at this capsule, only had one man in that. And then we went over the Gemini capsule and said, now this one had two men in it. And they were leading to, look at the Apollo. This one had three or more men in it. And this is the one that will eventually get to the moon. Wow, can you imagine that we actually made it? You know, it was back on May 21st, 1961. Were you alive? I wasn't. Uh, May 25th, 1961, when our president at the time, JFK, made this amazingly bold statement. He said, by the end of the decade, by the end of the 60s, that we are going to send a man to the moon and have him safely return to Earth. Wow. Right there in the Smithsonian Institute with uh, the Lunar Landing Unit, it's just evidence that 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 dream became a reality. That that amazing uh, uh, statement became a reality. By the end of the decade, we had Neil Armstrong and those walking on the moon. In in case you're one of those crazy folks who doesn't believe it's all uh, real, and that was a hoax, you may not believe it, um, but it's true. We actually went all the way to the moon and back. Isn't it amazing what man can do? Yeah, I mean, it should. It is. We're made in God's image, but isn't it isn't amazing what God can do. Really, it was Nehemiah who had a similar uh, uh, Herculean effort, uh, not necessarily to go to the moon and back but to take God's people who felt like losers, who who have been in the habit of losing and have been beaten up and ridiculed, to take them and to assemble them and encourage them and give them a a God-soaked vision for what God could do through them. To give them a God-soaked project and say, we're going to be able to raise up these walls that were burnt and destroyed so that we can be protected. So we'll no longer be ridiculed. And God used this man to do amazing things in just 52 days, not the end of the decade, 52 days. These people, people like you and me, just ordinary people, did an amazing thing for God. We've seen through the book of Nehemiah, I think this is like the 12th or 13th sermon in Nehemiah. It's just chock full of profound and real practical ways for us. Although we're looking at a story that happened you know, 450 years before Jesus even arrived, maybe 2,500 years separated from us. And don't you love that God's word is living and active? Don't you love the fact that God's word is for us and it's practical uh, for us teaching today? So the story of Nehemiah is a story of a God-soaked success project, is it not? I mean, how else do you explain 52 days in a completed wall? We're going to look at a few things this morning. you got an outline to follow along. If you'd like uh, having a, a God-soaked life or a God-soaked project, uh, we're going to see three things, three components, a story of success. One is this. The component of a God-soaked project. What are those components? Components of a God-soaked reality. What are those things? And lastly, components of a God-soaked perspective. We'll leave here today not only seeing that how a life or a project can be God-soaked, And can have the success that God calls it. But we'll also leave here today, under God's word and empowered by the Spirit, realizing how should we live our lives? What's the perspective we have? What does a God-soaked perspective look like? Let me ask you before we begin. Do you have a God-soaked life? Do you? What are the things you look to? Maybe you're here investigating that. Have you ever been involved in a God-soaked project? Is God calling you to one? All right, let's get in. Let's look, go ahead and look at the outline. First thing is, is the components of a God-soaked project or life. Uh, there'll be some bullet points that come up on the screen behind me. Now, through Nehemiah, we have a clear projection, a, a clear portrait of what a God-soaked project looks like. So we're going to look at some of those things and say, these are components that we should anticipate in our life or in our projects. The first one is this. Expect enemies. Expect enemies. Nehemiah, ever since God put his hand on his shoulder and raised him up to do this great work, Nehemiah continually had enemies in his face. He continually had those who were naysaying what he was doing, trying to thwart the plan, always had enemies. If you are a child of God, anticipate enemies in your own life. This is what Paul says to a young pastor named Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, listen, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, or all who desire to live a God-soaked life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I mean, Tobia doesn't even go away after the wall is built. And so if we want to have a, a God-soaked project and we want to have a God-soaked life, we have to expect enemies. That's why God's word says this put on the full armor of God. Put on the full armor of God. You'll see that in Ephesians 6 uh, 10 through 18. Why? So we could take a stand against the devil. Why? Because we know the reality we're in a battle. You know what the, the enemy would love to convince us of? It doesn't really matter, and we aren't really in a battle. How has 9 11 changed security? How has 9 11 changed the way we fly? We now know there's a real enemy. We now know that we have to take precautions, expect an enemy to do stupid things. Expect an enemy to try to take your life. Christians, a God-soaked life, we should expect enemies. Secondly, we need to endure trials. A God-soaked life or project needs to endure trials. Part of our vacation uh, going up through North Carolina, uh, we stopped at a place called Damascus, Virginia. And Damascus, Virginia, I know some of you have done this, has an amazing uh, little thing there. What they do is in this little town, in this valley of this little town, there's like dozens of bike shops. And what they do is they're connected or very close to this trail that kind of goes along the Appalachian Trail. And there's a 17-mile bike trail. And it's about, you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not as wide as a road in most places. And it's a trail. It's kind of cindery in most places. But it's a 17-mile, ready for this, downhill bike ride. So you go down the valley. You pay your money for a bike, unless you have your own. And they load you up uh, on this trailer. They put your bikes all in trailers. Those who, who have uh, gone with you or are renting uh, with you. And then you get into a car. This is the American way because we don't pedal uphill, do we? Right? I mean, you get in a car, an air conditioned car, and they drive you in this van all the way up. And the, really, the only thing that's difficult is a little motion sickness, possibly on the way up. We had a little bit of that. But uh, once you get up there, uh, they will. Uh, let you out and they'll take out your bike and and there you go. And then you have 17 miles downhill. It's pretty nice. You go by some amazing beautiful scenery. I mean, just the the rivers that are running by you and the foliage. It's almost all canopied. It's just just great. Absolutely beautiful. Do you know that we had two blown tires? Two blown tires. It said nothing in the advertising about blown tires. You know, and I want you to know, you're all looking at me like I'm the one who popped the tire. No, I'm not true. My tires were fine, all right? Two blown tires, and I had to change. And when's the last time you changed a bike tire? I had to change a bike tire twice on a 17-mile drive. Now, I should have been a little suspicious when they gave us the bike. They said, listen, every other bike or so is going to have a little kit in it, and it will have a pump in there, and it will have extra tires, and I thought, okay, but who in the world thinks they're going to use the extra t- tires? Two of them, right? You see, I think as Christians, we think that our lives should be a downhill run all the way. We think, hey, we got Jesus with us, and he, he is, he's for us, who so can be against us, and, and we think that our sins are forgiven, and this Christian life is like getting on a bike and a beautiful 17-mile scenic journey through all of God's creation. You've lived long enough to know it's not true, don't you? I mean, it's amazing what God allows by his providence into our lives, that we need to expect blown tires along the way. We need to expect trials to come into our lives. Now, here's what we know about God. They're never random. A blown tire seems pretty random. And what did you hit? But our God is a God who's sovereignly in control of all things. And no matter what trial you face, it has not entered your life without going through nail-pierced hands, it hasn't. And whatever trial you have is not random. And our amazing God not only allows these trials in our our lives, he allows them into our lives for our good and his glory. I mean, for the love of Mike, I got exercise on a 17-mile downhill ride, pumping up tires. I mean, I know that's a small little thing, But God, in a bigger sense, every trial, everything that you go through, God can redeem and can use to to draw out his glory, to show you his goodness, even through your brokenness, even through those blown tires, to strengthen you, to humble you to remind you how good God is. I think that we got to be very careful here because we live in a time where Christians often wonder, does a God-soaked life really include enemies? Does a God-soaked life really include trials? Many of you will have something come into your life and say, God, this is really hard. I must be doing the wrong thing. I must be on the wrong path. And, and sadly, we have uh, uh, great smiling preachers who will tell you that uh, the, the, the life of a Christian really should be a downhill run without any trials. That's, just listen, that's not true. It's not true. That's not what God has said. Listen to what Scripture says, First Peter 4.12. Peter writes, Beloved, Beloved, he's talking to us believers, those who, who God loves, those who God has put on this amazing journey. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. If you have a God-soaked life or you're involved in a God-soaked project, you will face trials. Be careful thinking you're not on the wrong track. Thirdly, a components of a God-soaked life. Attempt great things for God. A God-soaked life will attempt great things for God. You know, if you've been around here for a while at Orangewood, you remember to the, the hurricanes of 2004, and you remember, we, some of us look back and say, man, that was an amazing time in our church, because we were looking for projects to bless a community with, and we found a, a house in Eatonville with a blue tarp way too long, and we said, let's repair that roof of that house, and we found out that's Mrs. Franklin's house, and, and then we found out that we couldn't get the roof up to code. It was so bad. We really came in and thought, oh, I guess that we can't do that. And just out of this God-soaked moment, the thought was, let's build another one. I know we're a church. I know that we're, many of us aren't gifted that way. But it was so God-soaked. It was so real. It was so God-called that, that God was att- calling us to attempt something so ridiculously great for God. Do you know that Orangewood, maybe you're new here, maybe you didn't know this, but do you know that in 30 days we built a house and you know it's still standing? <laughs> it's beautiful. It's amazing. It's amazing what God can do through his people. Previous pastor tried to instill that in us too, Bob Cargo. He had a, he had a frame motto. I think it came from a guy named John Hagee. Uh, and it said this, it said, uh, attempt something so impossible that it's doomed to failure unless God is in it. Attempt something so impossible. And listen, it's got to be so god so Attempt something so impossible. It's, it's doomed to failure unless God is in it. Is that not a great rallying cry? You see, the only problem is he hung that in his bathroom. And I, I never understood that. You know, you go in there, you look at that. Attempt something so great for God, doomed to failure, unless he's in it. Right message, wrong place. Listen, the right message, the right place is right here for the church. A God-soaked life, a God-soaked project is just going to know how ridiculously loved we are in Christ Jesus, how secure we are in Christ Jesus, that God will call and want us to change the world. He'll say, go try it, attempt it, attempt great things for God and see what he can do. Not only that, we, a God-soaked life uh, uh, will not only attempt great things for God, but it will expect great things for God. Expect them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they were uh, uh, thrown into a fiery furnace because of their love for God. They wouldn't worship a king named Nebuchadnezzar. They wouldn't lift him up above their, above their God. And because of that, the king's anger burned against them. And he got this furnace amazingly hot. And he was going to throw it in there, throw them in there. And if you've been around the Bible or around church, you probably know the story and how God preserves them. And as a matter of fact, as they peered in there, there was one other one in there that looked like the Son of Man. You know who that is, right? You know that that was Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus in there with him. But I love what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. He says, listen, O king, O king, our God can save us from the furnace. And we expect it. Our God can deliver us from your hand, and we expect it. Our God is going to do great things. But you know what, O king, even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we're not going to serve you. We're not going to listen to you. Expect great things from God, but don't be presumptuous. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, so-and-so is sick and it's bad, but I know God will heal them. Really? You know? I know. I know that God will heal them. How do you know? It's a, if they're a Christian and someone's going through a, a life Uh, uh, A scary moment, a life-threatening moment, if they're a Christian, we all can know if you are in love with Jesus and He's rescued you from your sins, listen, you can know that God will always heal you. Always. 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 He will never fail you. But He doesn't always always, always heal you in this life. And, And you know, He doesn't always heal us from the cancer. He doesn't always do it. And for us to say presumptuously, hey, I know He will. No, we know as a Christian, he ultimately will set us free and we will see him face to face. That's that's guaranteed. But expect him, expect him to heal him, expect him to pray and just intercede and just expect God to do great things. But don't do it presumptuously. You know, another real false thinking is, is that God's healing depends on our faith. And the point where if they're not being healed, you know what, I must be the problem. I don't have enough faith. And so we try to get more faith like we're rubbing the magic genie lamp God and have more faith, have more faith because that way I can manipulate God to do what I want him to do and to earthly heal him now. And you know there's a lot of teaching that will say that your loved ones are sick or your loved ones have died because you don't have enough faith? That is baloney. We know that faith changes, moves mountains. But I don't want for a minute as your pastor for you to feel a heretical weight on your shoulders that someone else's life lays in the balance of your faith. What do we do? We anticipate God to do great things. We expect God to do great things. We know God can do great things. And we trust. And we obey. I know it's hard But we trust and obey. And sometimes God has to redefine great. Sometimes God has to really redefine what great things he's doing for us. Because in our mind, great things mean this, this, and that, don't they? They mean a clear scan. They mean a healthy marriage. They mean kids that are walking right. They mean a marriage someday. here's, Here's success. A God soaked life will have success. It will have enemies. It will have trials. We should expe- attempt great things for God. Expect great things for God, but not doing it in a presumptuous way. We also should anticipate the world to notice. Now what happened in Nehemiah in 616? It said the world became afraid. They, they, the world took notice and they, they kind of had an adjustment. And Jesus says to his children, he says to those that he came to redeem, he says that, you know what? We are now the light of the world. That in this dark world, that we're, we're the light that shines. And not only do we shine, he says, where do we shine? We shine on a, on a hill as a city. And you can't help but notice a city on fire, a city lit up on a hill. That's what we are. The world will notice a God-soaked life. The world will notice a God-soaked project. And here's the great news. We don't have to blow our own horns. Christians seem to think that part of being a good good witness is to let everybody know all the good deeds that we're doing. Scripture says don't let your right hand know what your left hand doing or vice versa. Let God, let God open the eyes to whom he decides to open the eyes to see, wow, come and take notice. I remember during the Franklin Project, the question came up, do we notify the media that the church is building a a house in 30 days? I said, no, no. We just let God do it. We be faithful. We were to be faithful to what he called us to. Let's trust God to tell his story through us. Let's not worry about how we can focus the world on us. Let's focus our eyes on him. Let's have god soak projects for Him. Let's do it all for His glory and let God adjust their viewing to us. Because you want to know why? When He does it that way, guess who they see? They don't see us. They see Him. And that's what we are called to do. But anticipate the world to notice. And lastly on this part, guard and support what God has done. I love the fact that Nehemiah only almost, oh, by the way, we completed in 52 days. Oh, by the way, there's Tobia and he's still messing with everything. But what I did is I set a guard. What I did is, is, is we immediately uh, guarded and protected all that God has done. Are we doing it? That's a God-soaked components. Components of a God-soaked reality. Three things here uh, briefly. One is is that God is the great initiator. God never let Nehemiah for one nanosecond think it was about Nehemiah. God never let Nehemiah for one second think about all that was happening was because of his great leadership skills, although he had them. Or his great motivational skills, although he had them. Although his tenacity and great work capacity, although he had it. God made it very clear that he was the initiator. I mean, it's back in 2.8 and 2.12, early on, where Nehemiah 2.8 says, God's good hand was upon me. It was God who called me to himself. He is the great initiator. He goes on to say that I only have done all that God has put in my heart. 212. God is the initiator. It's true. God is the initiator for all God-soaked lives, God-soaked projects. I mean, God is the great initiator. Do we know that? I mean, he created everything out of nothing. In creation, He is the great initiator. In recreation, He took those who were dead and made them alive. He he alone is the great initiator to make us His. He is the great initiator with all of our projects, and Nehemiah knew it. Not only is God the great initiator, God's the great sustainer. And some, some, some of you right now just need to know that God's sustaining you. Some of you need to know right now, it's not so much about your grip on God that matters. It's much, much more about God's grip on you. God is a great sustainer. Uh, Nehemiah says in 2.20, the God of heaven will make us prosper. It's God who will sustain us through this. The God of all comfort. He is in this. This is his God-soaked project. He he is going to finish this and he will sustain us. Lastly, in that point, the second point is God is the great finisher. You want to hear some good news? God always finishes what he starts. Did you hear that? I mean, did you really, did you let that go down into your soul? God always finishes what he starts. Do you know that if you're his, that includes your life? It's God who accomplished the building of the wall. It's God who will make sure that you and I as his children will make it home. Let me ask you this question. What in your life is complete? What in your life is complete? What in your life is finished? What in your life can you check off and say, done that? I mean, can't we say Nothing. Is is life not just constant change? Is life not just constant movement? Is, Is life not just constantly battling? Is that not life? What in our life is finished? I want you to know this. God wants us to know through His Word. His love is complete. His work is complete. We will make it home. And he wants us to be able to focus on that. What is finished? I want to take you to Romans. Romans 8. There's this glorious chain, golden chain they call it. Romans 8. Maybe you know 8.28. All things work together for the good for those who love the Lord are called according to his purpose. But what I want to focus on is this. Romans 8.30. It says this. Listen to this. And if you have a little pen, you want to look at the, the tense of the verbs here. Okay? It's very important, the tense of the verbs. And verse 30 says this, And those whom God he predestined, and those he also called. So it's God who's the great initiator. God has predestined us. He's the great initiator. It's God who has called us. And to those whom he's called, he also justified. That means this, that we could stand before a holy God, and we can be declared forever not guilty, and he doesn't have to wink and pretend that we're not miserable sinners. That God will justify us before His holy bar in Christ Jesus. Amazingly, the power of the blood is such to wash the foulest clean, to robe them in perfect righteousness, that you and I, if we are a child of God right now, we are today and forever declared not guilty. Is that not good news? We are justified in God's eyes. It's more than as if we kept the law perfectly. We have Christ's righteousness. But listen, many of us stop there. But he goes on to say this, And for those who he justified, he also glorified. What are the last two letters of glorified? E.D. What does it mean to us in the English language when a verb has E.D. on it? It's in the past tense, right? Right? I mean, this is an amazing picture of what this eternal God, who's outside of time, sees us. He says, Those whom I've predestined, I've called, and those who I've called, I've forever justified. And right now, in my eyes, I see Him glorified, which means perfection. Isn't that good news? He sees the finished product, and that's the way He can continue to love us so much. We rarely focus on that reality of the finished product. Paul says it this way in Philippians 1. Philippians 1, 1.6. Paul says, and I'm sure of this. I mean, I'm just convinced of it. That he who began a good work in you. Who began a good work in you? It's God as the ultimate initiator, sustainer, and finisher. That he who began a good work in you. He will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul was convinced of the reality that we are perfected in Christ Jesus. I know we live in the in-between right now. I know that we live in a moment where everything seems to be changing. And how do we have a God-soaked life? And how do we have God-soaked success? And God says, here, here are the components. Here's the things to expect. Here's the reality to focus on. And this helps us with perspective. How are we to live? So what? How are we to live? Three things. One is a backward gaze. Christians should always live their lives with a backward gaze. We need to gaze back at the cross and know that all that God required for us to be forgiven, all that God required for us to be cleansed, all that God required for us to have life and life abundantly was done on the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus, who became our sin, could cry out, It is finished! It is complete. As Christians now, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of struggle, we live our lives backward glance, backward gaze, looking at the cross, the empty tomb, knowing that we are now justified in God's eyes. What's our perspective of godly, soaked life? It's got a backward gaze. But it's got more than that. It's got a future hope. Stephen Covey's a really smart man. He's done some amazing things. Uh, theologically, he's a mess, but we'll go, we're not talking about that. But he came up with the seven habits of highly effective people, uh, good earthly wisdom, and he says this one of the things is begin with the end in mind. That's good, good perspective. Begin with the end in mind. Do you know that this should be true for Christians? That what is the end for us? The end for us, this glorified, this end for us is perfection. It's coming. What's the end for us? Is that we no longer even have the ability to sin. What is the end for us? That we will be like Him. We will reign and rule with Him. What is the end for us? It's eternity with Jesus. What is the end for us? It's glorification, a glorified body like His. Live your life with the end in mind. Christians need to have both a backward glance, a gaze, and a future hope. And I do believe that rarely do Christians really live with that forward reality. And the enemy would love to have us so mired in the junk of today, and so absolutely despondent with all that's happening with us, that there's no hope, there's no joy, there's no life. The enemy wants to rob that from you. Christian, gaze backwards to the cross. Christian, gaze forward to the perfection that's coming. And may hope rise, may life rise, and the reality of whose we are. A forward hope. But how do we do that? We have a present reality in which we are to focus, a present focus. How in the world can you look backwards and look forwards at the same time and move forward at all? You know, the Greek gods try to, the Greeks had a God ca- called Janus. Uh, this Janus God is where we get the, the, the month January. And if you've seen an a, a image of this Janus God, it has this. It has a look going backwards and a face that faces forward. But what good is a God or what good is a life that only looks backwards, only looks forwards? How do you ever move forward? Christian, here it is. You Ready? You focus upon Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the author. He's the great initiator. Jesus is the author of our faith. Not only that, Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. He's the great finalizer. So we look to Jesus because in Jesus, Scripture tells us, we are looking at the Alpha and the Omega. We're looking at the beginning and the end. We're looking at the one who's given us life and hope and meaning. So the call for us to a God-soaked life or a God-soaked project is to focus all we can on Him. Because when we focus on Him, we do have a backward gaze to the cross. When we do focus on Him, we are focusing on the future. Because He says, you're going to be like me. That's amazing. In Him, we see that our past has been dealt with. In Him, we see that our future is secure. So in Him, we live we move and we have our very being. On July 3rd, the day before July 4th, uh, we, went, uh, we were in Alexandria and we went uh, to the waters and we were able to look across uh, um, the river there. I can't remember the name of it. And we saw the Capitol Harbor and they were having, I heard it was almost as good as a, as a, a fireworks show that was the next day that we went to in Washington. So we double dipped, I mean, you gotta do it. And it was awesome. And we sat across uh, the river, and, and we were able to see the fireworks go up. And, and it, was, it was a very muggy night, and uh, some lightning was, was out and about. And, and amazingly, the grand finale came, and it was lighting up I-95. That was kind of in our, on our, in our purview. It wasn't the best angle. But, uh, um, and the grand finale was amazing. It was lighting up the sky, and it just got done, and everything went dark. And lightning just raced across the sky. I mean, it raced this way, you know? You know when lightning sometimes goes sideways, you know? And, and, and the scope of it was so much grander than anything we just saw. And it was just amazing. It was just, it was just like God just waiting and said, oh, okay, cue the lightning. <laughs> and we just sat there and I said, okay, God, you win. God, you win. I mean, man can't do anything compared to what you can do. And what God can do through a God-soaked life, do you know a God-soaked life wins and there's nothing like it? JFK, a great leader, says by the end of the decade, we're going to get to the moon and back and we did it. Jesus, the ultimate leader, the ultimate king, says in three days, I'm going to accomplish life. And you now can have a God-soaked life because what Jesus has done. Do you have it? Do you have a God-soaked life? If so, that's success in God's eyes. That's success. If not, no matter what you have, Scripture says it's futile. Are you involved in a God-soaked project? What is it? Are you attempting great things for the Lord? I loved a story I heard just Friday was about a group of people that got together and just kind of wrestling with Orangewood and the changes and small groups that are coming and being a part of it and two services. And, you know, what do we do? And they say, let's just jump in. Let's just, let's jump in. Let's make this a God-soaked project. It's a great church. Let's make it better. Let's be a part. Let's move forward. Amen. God's doing great things. May he truly lead us to a God-soaked church. Let us pray. Father God, we ask that you would truly, in each one of our lives, allow them to be God-soaked with your success. Father, we're, we're so ignorant that when enemies come or when trials come or different things, we just think, well, I guess God's not in it. But God, thank you for Nehemiah who just shows us that you you are the great initiator, that you are the great sustainer, that you are the great finisher, that we're going to have all kinds of issues, but in you we win. I pray for each one here, God, that we'd have this God-soaked perspective, that we'd look back to the cross and know there's, there's victory, that we'd look forward to being with Jesus and know that's coming, it's perfection. And that today we could focus our eyes on the one that holds those two together, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, so that we can have God-soaked success in life. It's in his name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.